From the Zimmerman Symphony Center in Canton, Ohio, this is Orchestrating Change. I'm Matthew Jenkins Yaroshevitz, Associate Conductor of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. And I'm Rachel Hegemeyer, Manager of Education and Community Engagement. Welcome to Season 3 of our podcast. We are so glad you could join us. This podcast navigates issues that exist in the field of classical music and the world at large. We invite you to listen with open ears as our guests share their experiences and as we discuss these often avoided topics. Our guest today is composer Angelica Negron. Her works range from traditional orchestral and chamber pieces to compositions for accordion, toys, and electronics, and have been performed by such prestigious ensembles as the Dallas Symphony, the National Symphony, and the Kronos Quartet, among many others. She was an artist in residence at National Sawdust in Brooklyn and is currently a teaching artist for the New York Philharmonic's Very Young Composers program. Originally from Puerto Rico, she grew up playing piano and violin before coming to New York City for studies at New York University and the CUNY Graduate Center. Angelica Negron, welcome to Orchestrating Change. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, can you just share a little bit about how you grew up and how music was a part of your life when you were a child? Um, sure. Well, I was born in, and raised in Puerto Rico and um, very musical family, um, but mostly just that's very common there. So um, just music in every party and big family. I'm an only child, but my mom has eight brothers and sisters. So lots of cousins. Um, I had one, I have one aunt that she used to be an opera singer and, and conduct the San Juan Children's Choir. So she was like the classical musician in my family. And she um, had a big impact on, on, on my upbringing. Um, but I would say I, I, I played piano, mostly it was just Disney musicals, so yeah. I, I still can play Under the Sea pretty well, um, part of your world, that was my repertoire. But then there was another side of me, I was really extroverted as a kid, that changed a lot after high school, but I was, um, I would put on shows like in like lunchtime and I would impersonate, like there was this really famous Brazilian children's, um, children's TV star, Chusha, um, and I would like put on a show during lunchtime and like wear boots like her and which was kind of weird and inappropriate because she had a kid's show, but her um, show really was like, uh, the joke always with Chusha was that she dressed for the parents and she sang for the kids. <laughs> <laughs> so there I would be like, you know, in first grade impersonating this, <laughs> this singer. Um, so and I I love to dance and um and and put on shows for my family. I had this club um, called Club de Niños con Arte, which is like um, <laughs> well, an awful name, but and that translates even worse. But like club with of children with art or something like that. That was me and my cousins. Oh man. Um, 
and we would put on like shows and for for my family so yeah and then the classical music was just kind of like i did not see it as like it was i mean the musical formation but at, but it was not the music that I was super excited about. It was the thing that I was doing after school. Yeah. Um, it took me a little while to get to a place in which those two things kind of like then found some meaning together. Yeah. Yeah. So you loved music, didn't necessarily love playing <laughs> instruments, and ultimately you ended up as a composer. How did you discover <laughs> composition and, and what led you to decide to pursue it as your career? Well, um, when I was in high school, I discovered um, Tori Amos, Bjork, Fina Apple, um, a lot of uh, women singer songwriters, and and that that kind of blew my my mind and my world. And so I was starting to like get really excited about um, about music and lyrics and arrangements and and producing. But I was not doing any of that. Um, I was still studying violin and just. I kept studying music because I, even though violin did not feel like my instrument or it just, I loved music and I was like, okay, I guess I just, I'm going to continue practicing and maybe when I get better, I'll love it. <laughs> um, but that did not happen. Um, so it, it really was through pop music, like mostly experimental pop. And also through um, then after connecting with those artists, just resonating with me and, and listening to them a lot and being obsessed with them, starting my own band and then starting to make music with other people. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was my first um, attempt at composing was just making music with others. And because my first band was a little bit atypical, it was a string quintet with a singer in electronics that I was notating things down. So I guess um, that that actually turned out to be my portfolio for auditioning to the composition department because I had no idea that composing was even a possibility. I'd been playing music my most like most of my life, but I never played something by someone that was living. So mm. I didn't know it was a possibility. I I got really curious about like learning how to play the cello, the harp, the started teaching myself the accordion. And I just thought I was the most unfocused violin student ever, but it turned out I was just curious about sounds around me and I wanted to write for all of them. So um, it was kind of like a long <laughs> route um, through bands, through um, starting to learn other instruments and then discovering there was an actual composition department that was like three people there, um, all like three guys. And then I, um, I joined that department and again use my compositions for that band that was mostly pop like experimental pop music but uh that was written down because of the instrumentation and then with that just switched to composition and have never looked back wow that's so I, it's so interesting fiona apple is a really interesting singer songwriter i really like her stuff mm -hmm. and she uses um a lot of orchestral sounds in her works mm -hmm. a lot which is really fun mm -hmm. uh there's a song by her extraordinary machine that has yeah. like so many wind parts and there's like fun little bassoon riffs and i play the bassoon so i love that song so much um oh, awesome. so that's really interesting bringing you know these pop vocalists and and like listening to them and inspiring you to go into composition uh but you mentioned you studied it and we kind of mentioned this in your intro you went to uh the conservatory of music of puerto rico new york university the cuny uh, graduate center um all these awesome places and as you mentioned you didn't realize that composition getting a degree in composition was a possibility i think a lot of people don't we don't really think of composers as living people a lot of people assume mm -hmm. that they're 
you know, old, old and dead. Um, Although for any of you who have been listening to the podcast you know that's from not the true. very beginning, all of you, of course, know that's not true yeah. at this point. Yeah, we've talked to many. Here. Yeah, we've talked with many composers now. But um, when you decide to go to school, kind of what surprised you about like the actual process of getting a degree in composition and what actually goes into uh, studying composition as a to become professional in it? Yeah, well, it was a an interesting um, time and realization that because there was this part of me that I was like, ah, this is what I meant to do. I found my thing, composing, great. And then when I started studying it, because I, my first attempts at composing or my first like adventures in composing were not caring about technique or any of that, it was just like very intuitive. Um, then I was like, wait, there's a right and wrong way of doing this, which, you know, it's also I don't think it's true, but it did feel very much that way when I was starting to study composition. And then all this identity things came up too of like, who are you and your music and um, and your music doesn't sound Puerto Rican and what does it mean? <laughs> and just like a bunch of other things that I was like, wait, okay, then I'm not ready to deal with this existential kind of part of it. <laughs> um, but um, I would say that, you know, there's, as I continue to study, like even till later in life and my doctorate, which it, it is, a, you know, it is, I think, a huge commitment that re especially graduate studies and doctorate that requires a lot of stamina, a lot of also a lot of writing words <laughs> um, yeah. that, you know, um, and partly that's also why I had to pause on my doctorate was because I was not writing as much music and I was writing more words and I had to make a choice. Um, and I think also, you know, especially moving to the US as a Latina woman, like it's also, to be completely frank, it's also a lot of navigating spaces and structures that, you know, have, that were not meant to include me. Mm -hmm. So that also adds an, another layer to that of complexity. Um, but, but yeah, it's also at the same time, uh, an opportunity to, um, to connect and study with people I admire. Um, I really started a doctorate. The main reason was because I wanted to study with Tania Leon and she's a dear friend and a mentor and that has been you know, instrumental in, in, in my life. Um, and, and same in Puerto Rico too, too I, was, uh, I studied with Alfonso Fuentes, a, a brilliant Puerto Rican composer um, that I always joke is the male Tania Leon, the male Puerto Rican Tania Leon <laughs> have a lot of similarities and have never met. Um, but, and then, then my music is completely different from the two of them too. So, um, so, you know, there's, I think, uh, at least from my perspective, there was a lot of, of challenges that came with studying composition formally, a lot of things that I'm still trying to kind of to turn off that part of my brain when I'm composing, because it gets to be distracting, um, and gets in the way of my creative process. But at the same time, it was also really, um, you know, it, it, it was um, a way for me to get nerdy about, you know, things that I'm really curious and passionate about with people that I really admire. So that's also, um, yeah, that's also something very special. Amazing. So, okay. So, so far you said you first were inspired to start composing because of your interest in pop music. Yeah. And then subsequently you said, but my music doesn't sound Puerto Rican. So tell us a little bit then about what 
is your music like? Yeah. If you had to describe a few representative compositions, what does your mu- what is your music like? And what inspires you? Yeah, well, I'm, this is always really tough. Um, and I mean, I'll, I'll say also that with the, the my music doesn't sound Puerto Rican is something I get a lot from Puerto Ricans and also from people here. And so it's, it's I do feel like my music sounds very Puerto Rican because how can it not? Because I am from the island. Right. So I do feel strongly that my music does sound Puerto Rican, but just the, I think I, when I mentioned it was more in the context of like, you know, there's this kind of like weird, um, weird uh, cultural depth <laughs> that sometimes it's put on people to kind of represent what the sound of a place and I'm quote unquote is, um, which, you know, we could do a whole nother hour about that, but <laughs> oh, <for I'm>, sure. <laughs> I digress. Um, but to, to your question about like, what is, like, how do I describe my music? I think um there are some words that keep coming up in my process and in just how I approach sound um I think open vulnerable um open in 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 vulnerability but also open in in the sense of trying to rethink what a performance space is what an instrument is just kind of opening up possibilities um playful I'm really drawn to to not only toy instruments and non-conventional music makers, but just I'm drawn to a sort of irreverence that takes it that of music that doesn't take itself too seriously, um, which is also why I love people and composers like Meredith Monk, for example. Um, yeah. And then there's also something curious and quotidian and domestic about it too. Um, I I love to put in conversation instruments that um, that are part of the traditional instrumentation with objects and instruments that are not thought of as um, as being in or are not often incorporated in or seen together and not really having that as like, oh, this is this quirky thing or this um, kind of, what's the word that there's like a, like a gimmick or, or that there's this kind of novel thing of like, oh, um, maybe that's the entry point for someone. But what I'm really interested is in, in putting them both in the same kind of level and not feeling like one is elevating the other or, or, or yeah. diminishing the other. It's just like, they both make cool sounds. What happens when you have them engage with each other. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I've, I've gotten to see you present and I, so I've heard, you know, parts of your music and I've looked some stuff up. Would you mind giving a couple of examples to us? Just like kind of explain, I know you wrote something for the Dallas symphony. It's a full orchestra, but then there's also fun, some fun stuff hiding in the middle in the percussion section. So. Yeah. Well, the percussion section, especially for orchestra percussion and keyboard is when I, <laughs> where I can have um, my, a lot of my fun um, percussion with fun objects, but also in the MIDI, in, in the keyboard, incorporating MIDI instruments too, and some of my own samples from objects from my kitchen. Um, yeah. I get a lot of pots and pans, and I love sounds that are in between pitches that they're not like they they sound like 
it could be a bell or an instrument that someone would play in the orchestra, but then it there is something about the timbre of it and the pitch that is a little off. Mm. Um, and also playing with, you know, taking out really important parts of the sound, like the attack, for example, if you hit a pot or a pan in your kitchen and then you, you the attack is the thing that tells you, oh, you just hit this thing in your kitchen. But then if you take that out and just leave the resonance and use that as a pad, then how can that also, you know, be in conversation with a brass moment in the orchestra and and things like that are, are really exciting to me. So, um, yeah, the more I find myself writing, because I, I think I'll, I'll, I did a lot of that for chamber music and solo pieces, but the more I find myself now writing for orchestra, it's also kind of a it's a it's a tricky territory to navigate yeah. um, because of, you know, limited time and resources and limited um, just capabilities of of making those things that require a little more extra time work. Um, but I'm really thankful to be working with people like the Dallas Symphony yeah. that um, are up for for those things. Yeah, really fun. It's, sound, it's really fun stuff. It's so cool. So you described this, uh, the samples of your own kitchen pots and pans, and they would be you pre-record them, I guess, and the musicians manipulate that in the performance this, with the, the recorded sound. But what are some things that the Dallas Symphony percussion section might have to scrounge around their attic to bring in to actually play in the concert hall and so hopefully hold up so that all the audience can see it, see this novelty of the concert hall? How fun. Well, actually, I'm thinking now of in that piece for the Dallas Symphony, I think I sampled a lot of things for my kitchen, but then in the percussion, it was pretty standard, um, the instruments that I had. Um, I it's weird. I get pretty specific about the kind of pot I want. So then I want to. I'm like either I ship that to the orchestra or I sample it and have the keyboard player play it and a MIDI keyboard. That's so fun. So so I get pretty. Like, I'm pretty attached to my walk and the caldero <laughs> I have. So it's so it. So I think um, oh, I I I went more on the safer side on the actual instruments that the orchestra is playing. It's like vibraphone and, and a lot of pitch percussion and and but but um that said i'm also interested in like that piece that i referred to the dallas symphony is really inspired by bell-like tones um and it uses a lot of glockenspiel vibraphone crotalis and i'm i'm really interested in those uh, these are like professional percussion instruments right um but their resonance like the more you leave it lingering and the and then how can that connect with by like string harmonics or things like that and then mm -hmm. how that is a connection that for me it's super obvious to the resonance of my walk um and having those two things happening simultaneously and how they can complement each other and like kind of bring out new colors um but but yeah i um, i just finished a piece for the seattle symphony in which the vibraphone is prepared with aluminum foil so I guess that's um, and that's inspired by my friends from So Percussion that have done that before. Um, but yeah, I, I I now that I'm thinking about it, I'm pretty conservative. Maybe I should bring the pots and pans <laughs> to oh, the actual orchestra. That's Next amazing. Piece. Yeah, how <laughs> fun. Yeah. Will this be your first performance for the Seattle Symphony? Your first piece that they yeah. will have performed? Congratulations. Be, yeah. Wow. That's so fun. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, that's coming up in April and I'm... I just finished the piece. I'm 
I'm really excited. Yeah, this year is uh, it's been a lot of orchestral music. That's cool. I'm on my my fourth just on my on my fourth orchestral piece in the past five months. Wow! Wow! So wow! It's never I in my life I thought, and I'm also you know it's combined with deep existential crisis of what else do I have to say with this medium and what am I doing here and all the things. Yeah. But you know. Um, keep going and trying to find new ways of, of sharing stories. Wow. That's really cool. And it, what's interesting is, a, so a lot of traditional orchestral patrons, you know, what we see at an orchestra hall are intend to be a little afraid of new music. Uh, I think, you know, this idea of like atonality and crazy things happening on stage and the non-traditional aspect of music really scares um, some orchestra patrons and they're less likely to want to listen to it or they're just, they don't know what's happening. So they want, they, they're afraid of it. But mm-hmm. I wonder what we would say, uh, to people who are maybe afraid of the new music, what would you recommend to them to, to listen to? Or how, how do you think about new music in a way that you think might open some people up to this idea of seeing things in a new light, listening in new ways, adding in these new sounds, because it's not scary. It can be really fun. There's pots and pans involved. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that This is such a good question. I, I mean, I, I have many thoughts around that, but I, I do feel like because there's so little representation of living composers in general in the orchestral um, and, and also opera world, like those larger institutions, we get to hear very little. And then it is as if you, if you reverse that, you know, and you would hear just a little bit of classical music, it might not be the classical music that you're into. It's just like, if you're hearing just a little bit of something, then you're missing so much. And then you, then people make really bold decisions. on like, this is not for me based on that tiny, representation of of what they're getting from new music so, but there's so much more out there um you know then there's obvious things too that are you know tied to i think i mean this it's hard for me not to go into just thinking about also how these things are attached to barriers of, that are connected to systemic racism and also and um yeah. and classism too and people that have been very purposefully excluded from these spaces too. Um, and then the little we hear, then it's, you know, um, then it could be that that piece was for you, but it could also be that it's not for you. And then you make a choice that that's not your thing. So I think uh, the obvious thing for me, is to have more of that um, and more diverse, not only in ethnicity and age and all of that and gender, but also diversity in styles because there's so much different new music out there. Yeah. And and I think for me, if if programmers and and organizations are really thinking about like the main thing, which is you know the storytelling and the and the program and what's what is it that makes a great program then even if you if you don't like the piece then there's something there about the storytelling that could get to you i think it transcends the music if there's something about like if we're not trying to check boxes if we're just like really programming thoughtfully uh, i think um audiences will respond will respond to that um and then there are you know many other things that could be done in terms of community engagement education um 
making sure that you know that the programming also reflects the community that they're in that you know there are partnerships with the that highlight the work that the people are doing there already not being like here is culture for you and just being really like what is the culture that is there already and um and celebrating that and yeah just I, I mean, there's, sorry, I went on a rant. I'm no, just, there's so much to say about that, yeah. but there's, but I think it really starts with that there is not enough representation of, um, I mean, I'm not even talking about um, women composers or, 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 or composers, you know, that are, have been underrepresented. I'm just talking about living composers. Yeah. yeah. So even just getting there um, to a place in which there is more out there. I think, um, yeah, the more we hear, the more people will have a chance to, to connect to something. That's a really good point. <laughs> so I have, I have a question to, to follow up on all this. Um, the audience, we're talking here about how we can, how we can hopefully open audience members' minds up about new music but from a composer's perspective do you even consider the audience when you're writing or should you even consider the audience or is it most important to to write what you feel as an artist what you feel moved to write yeah, yeah that's a, another really good question that i I'm not sure I have a straightforward answer to I I can tell you that I'm not thinking in I'm not thinking of the audience in terms of like oh I want this to be accessible um and and like I'm going to make sure that I want to write a melody here because then if it's a tonal then it won't be light I'm never thinking in those terms each piece is its own world and and kind of reveals itself as I'm writing and tells me what it wants to be um, so I'm not, that part of my brain is not engaged in, in, in the creative process, but I do feel like, and it's, it all goes to the, back to the concept of the piece and the stories I'm trying to tell it, they come from a very human place that because they're from my lived experience, they, I am sure will connect with someone else. Mm. So in that sense, I am that I'm always thinking about the audience to amount and I'm all also very consciously, particularly when I'm um, when when it's pieces that have electronics and things like that. I'm I'm very consciously thinking of ways that I can invite people in, mm. um, and so I think accessibility in in the sense of inviting rather than something that is um, I don't know if this is the right word in English, but um, palatable or yeah. you know yeah. just. It's more of like, how can I invite others in yeah. to this? And that might reflect in choices of like, instead of me playing a keyboard, I'm playing um, a plant for this piece, or it might show up in, in that the piece instead of being in a concert hall lives in a forest, and then you're invited to join in at some point by shuffling leaves or it, it it kind of manifests in different ways, but in that sense, I am always considering the audience, but it is, um, it is more of a, when it, it feels like a genuine part of yeah. what the piece needs to be, yeah. not 
this kind of external thing of what will people think because I did some of that earlier in my life and it was not fun yeah <laughs> and I don't want to do that anymore <laughs> no that that makes a lot of sense and like to to write something if you write something authentically and I think we've talked about this in like a lot of different angles on the podcast of when you are genuine and authentic more people are going to want to be a part of it because people can sense when something is genuine. People can sense when something is authentic. And I think that that goes for music as well. If you write from you as a composer, this is, this is what this is. Come along with us. I, I yeah. truly 150% <laughs> agree with that. And it took me a lot, like a long time to realize that. Mm. Um, I had this because of what we talked about before, right? My, my, um, first, uh, impulse to write music was because of my connection to pop music and then when I started to study music composition formally I kind of was like I have to silence that part of myself and then I need to sound like a certain way to so for people to take me seriously which is also has to do a lot with um with gender and with identity too it's just like you know um no I'm not supposed to be here but let me tell you I'm supposed to be here but then I in order for you to take me seriously, I have to sound like you. And then that's really problematic. Yeah. Um, so many years of, of internalized, um, yeah, just uh, trying to be some, to sound like someone I was not, and then suppressing parts of myself that were really important to me and, and that were the things that brought me to music in the beginning. So um, I think it, interestingly enough, it took me that year that I took away, that I took off from my master's to my doctorate, the first time I was not writing music for anyone else, like, and I was not showing music to any professors. It's just writing music for myself. And that really made a big shift and that was like 2009. And, and it was all about what you were just saying, being authentic and genuine to who I was and not really caring um, about all these kind of imaginary boundaries that felt very real at the time. And, and then I, I, yeah, it's, I'm, I really trust that when you're being your, you're bringing your most authentic self to what you do, then people will respond to that. And that really connects yeah. with people. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of people and like the audience, uh, we're, we ask all of our, our podcast guests to uh, give a recommendation to our audience, to our listeners about something that has maybe been inspiring to you or just uh, something fun you've been doing, or maybe a book that you really liked or a piece of music you really liked. doesn't have to be music related at all, but just something that you think our audience would like or might open them up to something new. Um, well, it's, there's many <laughs> things that I've um, enjoyed recently. I would say one thing that I'm I've been obsessed with for the past month um, is uh, Arca, um, who's uh, an electronic musician um, that also produced for Kanye West, Bjork, FK Twix. Um, but she's an incredible um, Venezuelan trans uh, music maker that I've been following for many years and just released in December four albums back to back in the span of a week. Um, and they're, they, it's pretty out there things, like very experimental, um, also some reggaeton inspired things in there, but the very last one of those, they're all called Kick. So Kick 5, the very last one, um, is 
the most kind of intimate, introverted, quiet, almost ambient with a lot of piano, processed piano and and interesting vocals too. And it's just, and I'm obsessed with it. It's just, uh, Arca is just such a fantastic and brilliant artist. But this album has like, I don't know how she does it, but it's, it's like super poppy, but at the same time, very experimental, introverted, but also larger than life. <laughs> like really dark, but also super luminous. Um, I don't know, like very shy and at the same time, very mysterious and sexy. I don't know. It's all the things at once in a way that makes me feel like oh, I would never be able to do that. And, it, wow. and I love listening to music that just even makes me forget that I write music. Just oh, I'm fully wow. in it. Yeah, That's insane. Four back to back. Yes. Wow. So one that was last, one that was, I think, in 2020, what year are we? 22. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> I know, right? So, so 2020 was one, um, okay, one, I think, and then four, like at the end of this past year. Wow. And, and kick five is, I mean, they're all really good, but kick five is the one that I'm currently really listening to. Wow. Wow. That sounds really cool. Amazing. <laughs> So before we go on, um, th those of you listening to the podcast audio only will not know that Angelica has a vibrant, bright pink <laughs> hair color right now. Tell and us an, a little bit. And an awesome what in, sweater. Yeah, a, a sweater oh, to match. You. Oh, yeah. And so tell us what inspired it. What inspired you to go pink and how for well, how long? I think it's fading a little bit. It used to be more purple. Yeah, when um, I saw you, but, it was purple. So it, goes, <laughs> it goes between pink and pink and purple. Um, it's been a while, like I think almost four years of this color or shades between purple and, and pink. I love color. I um, I love playing with uh, playing with color in my music and in my instruments, and and it's also a big part of who I am. So um, it's just. Yeah, I, I love playing with it. And at the same time, I think uh, the same way I, I was talking about suppressing parts of myself mm. and my music, I think a lot it a lot of the times I was like, oh, I, you know, I'm I'm you can't tell because I'm we're on Zoom and I'm sitting down, but I'm 4'11, I'm I'm tiny. Um and it's you know, a lot of the times, especially when I'm in spaces like orchestral spaces or that I want people to take me seriously, I was like, no, I have to dress a certain way. You know, I can be, you know, I'm already tiny and I'm a woman. So, and, and then I use toy instruments and people are like always thinking you know, everything is cute. And, and, um, but I, it took me a while to be like, you know what? I have to, I can't care about those things anymore. I have to be unapologetically me yeah. and uh, let the music um, speak for itself. And if someone wants to keep it at a surface level and just, in a reviewer and talking about music, say it's I'm cutesy or whatever, then that's not on me. That's on them. Yeah. Yeah. That's wow. I, yeah. When I, I saw you in person, your hair was a little more purple and you still <laughs> did the thing where you matched your clothes to your hair, like almost perfectly. <laughs> I don't know how you do it, but it's really impressive because you're doing it, it again. Happens. You're doing it again today. Your sweater like matches your hair perfectly. It's awesome. Um, but uh, yeah, I kind of that. I mean, that makes a lot of sense of like the way that you appear and people make snap judgments about that. And especially as someone who creates art, I can see why people would then 
put that snap judgment of what you look on, like onto the art that you make. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I like not kind of wanting to hide that. So people like look normal so that they just judge your art and don't try to put what I am onto it. But I think, yeah, that's really that. I think it's something that a lot of young people nowadays are coming to earlier I think I I see a lot of young people like with their own like sense of style already and I didn't have my own sense of style problem I'm still figuring out my sense of style I still don't think I I have a sense of a a unique sense of style I mean I kind of just dress the way I always have for my entire life yeah so I think it's it's interesting yeah I, I think also I mean I a big part of my musical formation is playing in bands too. And I, I still play in a band and it's, and so, you know, always have been really aware of also that, you know, the, the visual aspect is really important, not only in, you know, and how you look and what, and, but also the instruments you play, your stage presence, all of those things are, are super important too. And, um, and I think, you know, that, having because there a lot of my life has been like coexisting in those two worlds that I put very separate like the playing in DIY spaces and in bands and then also the classical music world which are two very different ones and and a lot of me kind of um blossoming and into my own self and and also just being tired because I'm 40 now (laughs) it just it has been like just you know it it is uh it, it is all part of who I am and there's no need to put things in separate boxes and, yeah. and also in a way embracing those things and being more even more intentional about them so um so that you know that because that's also I think a really important part of the conversation I remember like many years ago reading a this article on new music box by Sarah Kirkland Snyder the composer um um that was like called I think candy floss and merry-go-rounds yeah I just yeah that used like this quote that um, that was said about her in a review, and it was this. It's the same thing that we're just talking about in terms of appearance, but like you know, she's very she writes gorgeous melodies and and her music, and then people tying that to her identity as a woman, and then as something that you know is like kind of make diminishing her work because it's like oh yeah, women are emotional, all of these you know, all of these things that um that we what we know all too well but um but for me it's another way of you know of of reclaiming those things embracing them and being unapologetic and being like yes all of those things um you know it doesn't mean that because i have pink or purple hair that yeah um i can be taken seriously when i walk into an orchestra hall or um yeah it's it and it and it also is part of who i am and part of my music and yeah 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 yeah. Wow. Um, so you're you're really involved in the composition community. And like we've mentioned, you have stuff playing all over the country and you do five orchestra compositions. Um, and but you also contribute a lot in the education space as well. You uh, you're right now te- a teaching artist for the New York Philharmonic's very young composers program. Um, and you also f- uh, co-founded. I'm going to say it wrong. Okay. It's a hard word. Don't worry. How do you say it? A co- Acopladitos. Yes. <laughs> I don't have a good Spanish accent, um, which it's a Spanish immersion music program designed to cultivate young children's first musical encounters through like singing and move- movement and, and working with parents. And um, 
all these different experiences, why, uh, why are you part of these teaching experiences? And what do you think is so valuable about, especially these very young educational moments in music? Well, I think a big part of it is that I never even knew that composing was a possibility when I was that young. And the founder of the Very Young Composers program, John Deke, um, he talks a lot about how in visual arts, you know, when we're in preschool, we get to play with clay and different materials and paint and explore what it feels to mix colors together and to um, and to do different shapes. And that's very common. And everyone has that experience, right, growing up in school and in, and in their home. But with music, it is pretty different. There's a lot of the times the first entry point to music is through technique. Through There's a right or wrong way of playing something. Um, so so there is kind of like this um, this missing this gap in 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 arts education is tied to music and and that we don't get to play with sound and you could be you could be like playing an instrument and a master at your instrument for many years but you're but you never got to play with sound which I found kind of sad and um, so I I'm really passionate about. Kind of making space for those opportunities for younger people and um and also demystifying what a composer is and because that's also um something that's really important to me it's for people to realize that once you're making choices about sounds and organizing them and if you're excited about it and you're um and there's an intent behind it then you're a composer and that composer with a capital c is not safe for just a few privileged ones that have been able to study or so I I think um I I think it's I'm 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 like super excited about what young people have to say in music. And it just keeps me grounded and keeps me reminds me of why I'm doing this in the first place. Um which as grateful and and obvious like not obviously but uh, um as grateful and as um, honestly very surprised I am that I get to do this for a living, it all it is also my job. And I, you know, if I'm not writing music, I'm not paying my rent and my student loans. So it, it could, with so many deadlines back to back, could also lose some of the magic that started for me in the beginning. So working with young people and in this initiatives also makes me, like reminds me that it is a pretty cool thing that I get to do every day. And that's, it's like songs are a pretty special thing and um, and the way that we can share stories without words sometimes it's pretty magical. So um, yeah, that's, that's uh, why I keep doing it. Yeah, that is amazing. That's a lot. Yeah, that is so amazing. Young people are great and they have a lot to say. <laughs> yeah. And you know, yes. Rachel and I have experienced some of that mm. working with our youth orchestra yeah. here at the Canton Symphony. And yeah. it's, it's really, it's amazing. It's remarkable what young people can do yeah. when you yep. give them the opportunity. Yeah. It's really remarkable yes. what they're yep. able to achieve. Yeah. And, and to have the chance to do it at an early stage mm -hmm. and also at, and in places that have, you know, because you're in the community, so it obviously reflects the makeup of the community. Then you're hearing from all these people that you, we haven't heard in these classical music spaces which makes it for me even more exciting because I'm like, yes, that's why we need you in the concert halls and, and beyond. It's um, because we haven't heard these stories mm -hmm. and um, and 
when they don't have all these years of um of all this training too it in a way also it makes it more exciting because it then then imagination comes into play more and and there's no preconceived notions of what is music or what is a musical sound and then everything is a possibility and that's yeah i mean that's that's for me what yeah. you know is the thing that's going to save this for moving forward yeah for sure it's so interesting you know i uh never really tried composing growing up. I, I played instruments and sang and everything, but I never tried composing. And then in college, I did a little bit. And I found by that point, I was so steeped in the rules of Western art music that I could actually imitate 18th and 19th century composers pretty well. Mm -hmm. but I couldn't bring myself to break a bunch of rules. Like it was just so, yeah. it was so ingrained. And to, for kids to have the opportunity without ever having learned the rules to simply create. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I think it's, it's a, such a crucial part mm -hmm. of the development of the brain of a young child. And it's something, honestly, I think I, I missed out on. Yeah. And mm -hmm. it, yeah, it begs the question of, of, uh, how do we teach and how do we approach music in a way that encourages sound exploration, encourages own individual thinking um, with also introducing like these ideas of like rules and structures, like, like they do exist, they do help us write, but how do we balance, you know, it's like this idea of like, how do we balance all of that? And what does this yeah. actually mean? And um, yeah, cause it's, when I was a kid, I remember like my, I grew up in like a bluegrass household. My dad plays in a bluegrass band. So I mm -hmm. first got introduced to the bassoon at a campfire at a random music festival in Kansas. So like my <laughs> conceived notion of what classical music was, was very different. So I have like, I have like this, like the jam mentality of what I call it when people just hang out and jam mm -hmm. and play music together, which a lot of classical musicians are abhorrent to. They're like, mm -hmm. I don't know what this means. I don't understand. Mm -hmm. So I'm really grateful. I grew up with that. But then at the same time, I, I, I still, because I do have a classical music training, it takes me a little bit to fall back into that sometimes to remember yeah. how it works. But yeah. The, I mean, it obviously, as with every um, thing that you put your mind to, you know, it, it, but I would say in classical music, there's a, there's a discipline and there's a, you, you have to give so much to it that it is really easy to lose yourself and it's important to reconnect with why you're making yeah. music in the first place. Um, it's sort of, I mean, it is pretty sad that sometimes in school, you know, we, um, we, we lose that. But, you know, sometimes also there are great mentors that you find along the way that remind you of that. Um, or, or there are other opportunities in your professional career that then you in places in which I never thought that I, I I thought I really hated teaching I used to teach violin and I was like oh this is not for me and you know it obviously then became very clear that when, because violin was not my thing that I did not like obviously violin, teaching violin but when I started doing teaching artist work and and doing creative composition projects with kids I was like this is amazing I I'm in love with this and and I stumbled upon that because I was looking for a job the same way I stumbled upon starting a, a music education for like for babies in Spanish that was um because I I was looking for a job and I just finished my my 
master's full of students loans from NYU. And then I ended up being an assistant for a mommy and me music class and basically just cleaning maracas after class um, and and vacuuming the rug after the, the kids were playing. And I was like, oh, these songs are awful. We need more repertoire in Spanish. <laughs> um, and then my best friend had just moved um, to New York and we started writing music for kids in Spanish. And so it's, I think, you know, sometimes these things happen you know, in those unexpected ways, but it's also in a way awaken something in you that has been burning for a while. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's amazing. So as I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, you were an artist in residence at National Sawdust, which is a prestigious new music venue in Brooklyn, New York. And for it, you are writing a drag lip sync opera called Chimera, which explores the ideas of fantasy and illusion and the intricacies and complexities of identity. This to me is an absolutely fascinating project. Tell us more about this. Um, so Chimera uh, was born out of my love and, and respect for the drag community. I, um, I am not only a big fan of the of the art of drag, but I also was really fortunate when I was growing up. I when I was talking about my extroverted childhood, I did not mention that I also grew up around a lot of drag queens, and I uh, that were my mom's friends. So I would just be in their shows and do opening numbers, um, and help them pad their outfits and things like that. So that was a very formative part of my life, and um, and. And something that, you know, I now looking back, you know, as I'm, uh, you know, many years after um, pretty particular way to grow up in a small island in the Caribbean. <laughs> so, um, so out of that, and also my kind of my impulse and always shaking up things, um, I was like, what if I take the main element in an opera and what if I take that out and the voice is not present, but it's recorded? Um, and how can that also play into narrative? And and I, I started playing with that a little bit in a residency I did at National Sadas. Um, that's uh, not only an amazing venue, but also a really, really um, awesome artistic hub and community for artists that Paula Prestini, the founder and composer has um, created and started playing a little bit with that there. I wrote about half an hour of the opera. It's still ongoing. I have been doing other projects that are satellite projects that connect to it and that are informing what the larger thing will be. Now, I'm not even sure it's gonna be staged. I'm thinking it might be a film. Um, so, yeah, it is, it is because it's such a personal and and um, close to my heart project. And it's not, it's the one thing that I've been working on that it's not a commission. It's just my passion project. Um, the thing that's not so great about that is that I get to work on it on only when I have time. But at the same time, I the good thing is that I can maintain the integrity of it and not have any outside pressure and then let it be what it wants 
to be and play and experiment and see what it really wants to be. Um, and I recently did a piece, um, a digital commission with Opera Philadelphia called The Island We Made um, that was in collaboration with the filmmaker Matthew Plasek and the drag queen Sasha Velour. And we did a 10 minute opera film and that was connected to Chimera in the sense that it's lip sync and it's also things of identity and also connected to my childhood and also my relationship to my mother. But at the same time, um, it was a, a really great experience too, an opportunity to explore some ideas that I've had, but through the medium of film. And that revealed a lot of things that might be now part of Chimera, even though this is a separate piece. Um, so yeah, it, it is it is exciting. I'm just, um, I'm really grateful for uh, the, the, the queens that I get to meet through this and how this is also not like someone asked me like what is this opera about there's I don't have an elevator pitch of like this is about da -da 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 -da. I really I'm meeting with drag queens that I admire and that I think something in their story in my personal story resonates and then through getting to know them write a song specifically for them and then the narrative of the opera if there is some kind of narrative will evolve um, from that organically so it is not a usual way of uh, of writing something or an opera and um but it feels right and i and i'm excited to see to see where it goes yeah that's really yeah, so there's no timeline for it. I know. Right I want to see it right now. I, I would love to see it. I, I would. I would. Is this happening now? I would go somewhere far away to see this. <laughs> yeah, it, it's so, so exciting. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, I I'm definitely hoping that by 2025 it is done because it does. You know how it happens also sometimes with passion projects like, and. Again, I'm really grateful. I have a lot of commissions lined up, but at the same time, I'm like, oh, but I really want to work on this thing. And I have to be intentional about making space for that, even though it's not an official commission. Mm -hmm. And um, because it's something I'm really passionate about. So I um, I have a residency next year um, in Italy, mm -hmm. a six weeks um, residency in Civitella. And I'm I'm hoping to focus on, on, on finishing that opera then. And, and then, yeah, so hopefully um, in my own internal, not putting so much pressure on myself, but I want to get this done timeline. There is a 2025 goal okay. in mind. 2025, <laughs> we'll check back in. Very, very um, good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's so interesting. These types of projects and, and, and the kind of work that you do, I feel are very indicative of what the future of orchestral or, or you know, art music or whatever title we want to put on it, music is. Um, what are, maybe can you give us a, a couple of, of thoughts or some projects that you have worked on or are working on that you feel are indicative of what you think this art form can be fun be, can become at least for you? Yeah, well, I'll say that um, just connecting to what I was saying before, the Opera Philadelphia project was really amazing because it was digital commissions and just the fact that they would trust me with. Um, with an opera and which, you know, the, there's no, we don't see the singer on the film even, or, um, we hear her through the lips of this drag queen. Um, and just rethinking of opera as like, an opera could be a 10 minute film too. Like we can bring that kind of this quality of scale to this and in, the intimacy of, of this medium. I think they're doing really incredible work with that. And, um, 
and you know I know this was also tied to the pandemic so everyone is rethinking um how you know to survive and and um artistically too in in these times but I think they are a really great example of a model of not just putting a band-aid on something and or trying to like okay we just have to keep going but like then this is an opportunity also to like the to a medium that you know definitely needs um new people in then how can we also um make sure that we're that we're opening it up yeah. to others yeah not only in audience but also in and the people that are sharing those stories um other projects that I can think of are um, Kronos Quartet has this amazing project called 50 for the Future. Um, and it's 50 commission, commissions, um, 25 men, 25 women, writing, um, all living composers writing pieces that are up on their website for download for free. The scores, the parts, recordings, interviews with the composers, interviews with the folks from Kronos, talking about the how they put it together. So it's a really incredible resource that is also dismantling this access barriers of who gets access to music by living composers. Yeah. And also a great education resource because um, talking about this, I, this thing of that of that we're talking about before of of um, new music and and people feeling some audiences or even some performers or just people in general feeling a little hesitant about it, then this is like, there's no excuse. There's so much there and it's all for free. And it's also a really well-made website that you can search for things in a way that is like very, it's like if you're a string teacher in Ohio and want a piece that has extended techniques um, for your students, but it's also accessible to their level, you can very specifically search those things and on their website. So. I think projects like that are are just so inspiring to me to see and um and I hope to see more of those. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So Angelica, before we let you go, we're gonna ask you the question we ask all <laughs> of our guests at the end of each episode. How do we orchestrate change? I think we orchestrate change by being who we are, but also making sure we're listening and we're making space for others. Mm. Um, advocating for others um, when you're in a position of power, privilege, making sure you shake things up, you question things, you invite others in, um, not staying quiet. Um, and just continue to challenge things so that we can actually see change. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and Helka, thank you so much for being here. It was absolutely wonderful to talk with you. And I feel like we could talk about a lot of topics for way longer. Oh my for goodness. Sure. Oh yeah. There's, <laughs> oh yeah. There's, there's so much to this topic, but I'm, I'm really glad you were able to just share a little bit with us about how you feel about, identity and composing and all of this stuff so I'm really just grateful that you were here today thank you so much thank you so much for inviting me I had a great time thanks Angelica Negron Puerto Rican born and New York City based composer 
Orchestrating Change is a production of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. Our theme music was composed by Eric Gould and performed by Derek Snyder and Tim Adams. Our audio engineer and mixer is Nathan Maslick with video and audio editing by Shoreline Media. Thank you for listening and see you next time.